whose servant are you? Here's another way to ask the question, whom do you serve? I want you to think about it seriously in your mind. I want you to formulate the correct, the honest answer, whom do you serve? While you're thinking about it, let me welcome you into the final week of our eight-week-long teaching series. For the last two months now, we have been thinking together about seven strong, overcoming high tension. As most of you know, for all of these weeks, we have been learning together seven qualities, seven character traits that must be present in our lives if we are to be able to bear up under the pressures of life, if we're going to be able to withstand the high tension that comes with living in this broken world, a broken man among broken people, then we need to live with some qualities, some character traits, which we can see in Jesus. All of these are true of Jesus, but we've been studying them in the lives of five people. You remember that those five are Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Mordecai, and Esther. And so for eight weeks, we're thinking about five people in three books of the Old Testament. And from these five people whose lives are chronicled in these three books, we are learning these seven qualities. Now, over the last six weeks, we have discovered six, and today we're going to talk about the last one. Let me remind you of the previous ones. We talked about endurance, integrity, graciousness or a gracious spirit, courage, duty, and discipline. Those are the six that we've discovered so far. Today, we're going to be talking about the final one. Jot it down somewhere. It is obedience. Obedience. This quality, this character trait of being a person of obedience. Which brings me back to the question that I asked you just a couple of minutes ago. Whom do you serve? Whose servant are you? So as you're asking that question and formulating the answer, let me give you a verse which will inform your answer. It will help you to answer the question, whose servant am I? It's Romans chapter 6 and verse 16 which says this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient servants, you are the servants of the one whom you obey. Notice the last part of that verse. You are the servant of the one that you obey. So to answer the question, whose servant am I? Simply ask the question, who do I obey? That will tell you whom you serve. Now, the truth is, you really only have a couple of possible answers when you say, Who, uh, whom do I obey? There really are only two, maybe three answers, but I really think there are only two possible answers to the question. Let me give you the two potentials. The first one is, you might say, I serve, that is, I obey myself. I am a servant of me. Now, we probably would never articulate that, but really it's true that we are servants of ourselves when we say, I am the master of my, own sh- of my own destiny. I drive my own ship. I do sort of pretty much what I want to do. You know what I've learned after 30 plus years in the ministry? It's absolutely true. People do pretty much 
what they want to do, right? We tend to follow our own desires. And you would have to admit, wouldn't you, that we sometimes stand proudfully, proudly and say, like Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, right? We want to come to the end of life and say, I've, I was a man of my own means and I served my own purposes and I did my own thing. I think you would have to admit that if you are the servant of yourself, then you have a pretty fickle master, don't you? Because some days you feel this way and other days you feel that way and some days you're good and other days you're not so good and some days you're determined and other days you're not and, and yet this is the way that we often live. It makes sense from a human philosophy. I want to do what I want to do. I want to make my own way. But listen to what the book of Proverbs says about that. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12 says, There is a way which seems right unto a man. There's a way that I ought to live. I want to make my own way, determine my own path. It seems to make sense. There's a way that seems right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. So the Bible says if you're your own master, you're headed for death. Because what seems right to you is taking you toward ultimate death. Uh, there's another passage I just want to read you quickly. It comes from the very end of the Bible in the book of 1 John. Listen to 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 16. For all that is in the world, and this is what is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things are not of the Father, but they are of the world. Now, I share that verse with you because if you are going to serve yourself, if you're going to obey your own um, commands, your own ways, follow your own path, then what John says is be careful because here's what's in the world. Here's what's informing your decisions. Here's what's determining your path. He says in verse 16, it is the lust of the flesh. So you will live for what your flesh craves. He goes on to say it is the lust of the eyes. It is what your eyes see and covet after and desire. It is the pride of life. It is what your pride demands that you will seek after. So if you answer the question, whom do I serve? Well, I serve myself. Then you are serving one who is driven by, motivated by the lust of the eyes, what I can see and covet, the lust of the flesh, what I crave for, and the pride of life, what my arrogance and pride demands. And Proverbs says the end of that path is death. Who do you serve? Be careful if you serve yourself. But there's a second answer. There's a, there's a second path that you can choose, an answer to the question of who is it that I serve that would be if you answer it this way, I serve or I obey God. Now, nobody can say that we do that in totality, that we do it to perfection, of course. But we can answer by saying, this is the desire of my heart. This is what I want. I want to be the person who serves, who obeys the Lord. That is that I serve and obey him by keeping his commands and by following his word. We're going to see this in the example of Ezra. Look at it with me. Ezra chapter 7 and verse number 1. If y'all are with me so far, would you say amen? Watch this. Ezra 7 verse 1. Now after these things, in the reign of 
Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, who was the son of Azariah, who was the son of Hilkiah, who was the son of Shalom, who was the son of Zadok, who was the son of Ahitub, who was the son of Amariah, who was the son of Azariah, who was the son of Merahoth, who was the son of Zeraiah, who was the son of Uzai, who was the son of Buckeye, who was the son of Abishua, who was the son of Phinehas, who was the son of Eleazar, who was the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra, everybody look up here, do you love those verses or what? This is like a DNA test before we knew about DNA. Which Ezra was it? It was this Ezra who was the son of the son of the son of the son of. I mean, I love the fact that in his own writing of his own activity for the glory of God, that Ezra recounts his own lineage, his own genealogy, so precisely that there's no question who it is. It's not that Ezra who happened to live about a hundred years ago down next to the creek. No, he's given the lineage to 16 generations. Verse 6, well, it was this Ezra. He went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And there went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the porters, the Nethanim, those are the servants of the temple, unto Jerusalem. They went in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And he, Ezra, came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For upon the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylon And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. It's a four-month journey. He began in the first month, came in the fifth month of the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He arrived in Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God, which was upon him. Verse 10, for Ezra had prepared his heart. I I want you to say that phrase out loud with me. Both campuses say it, prepared his heart. For Ezra had prepared his heart. It's an important thing to note about him. He had prepared his heart to do what? To seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel the statutes and the judgments. Verse 10 really is the key that I want you to see in Ezra chapter number 7. And I want you to notice this thing to be true about Ezra. And I want you to crave that it would be true of you as well. That Ezra had prepared his heart. It it means that he had devoted himself. This was not a happenstance. It wasn't something that was a whim or uh, something that fluctuated in and out of his life. No, he had devoted himself. He had determined within his heart, verse 10, he had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. Now the law of the Lord, the the Hebrew word for law is the word Torah. Torah, or we would say Torah. You've heard that, Torah. It means the law 
or the book of or the books of Moses. It's the writing of Moses. He set his heart to seek the Torah or the law of God or the writings of Moses, which contained, verse 10 says, the statutes and the judgments. Statutes meaning the commands or the ordinances that God had given and judgments being the declarations or the determinations or the decisions with regard to how those statutes are uh, obeyed or followed. So verse number 10 says that Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Interestingly, if you turn back to look at verse number 6 that we read just a moment ago, It says that Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. So the law of the Lord was the law of Moses or the law that God had given, the statutes and the commandments that God had given to Moses. And those commandments were written in a book. And what was the book? It was the Torah. And what is the Torah? It is the the books of Moses. We would call them Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It is the book of the law or the book of Moses. This is what he set his heart to seek after and to know and to obey and to teach. Now, the book of the law, the book of Moses, is the beginning of our Bible. You know that. It's the first five books of our Bible. Ultimately, with the passing of time, the the entire Old Testament was developed, right? So the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then with the unfolding of the history of the nation of Israel, the chronicling of the history of the nation of Israel, the books of prophecy that are in the Old Testament, the books of poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those books that are in the Old Testament, Ultimately, these became our entire Old Testament. So when you think about what Moses, or I'm sorry, what Ezra was seeking, he didn't have the entire Old Testament. He simply was seeking to know what he had, which was the law, the first five books. Ultimately, the entire Old Testament was completed. And then, ultimately, with the birth of Jesus and and uh, the Gospels being recorded, and the birth of the church and the expansion of the church came the writing of the New Testament and our entire Bible. But the Scriptures tell us how the Bible came together. You know, in the book of Ezra, we've been reading how this was the law of Moses called the law of the Lord. It was was the commandments that God had given to Moses. But Peter describes for us the process by which God gave those writings, those commands and statutes to Moses, and ultimately to other Old Testament writers who would come. Look at what the Bible says in 2 Peter 1 and verse 21. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, at the end of the Bible, explains to us that the that the construct of the Bible, the development of the Scriptures, came about by the working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of holy men who received it and wrote it down, beginning with Moses and then others to follow. 
So all of that to say that if we're going to apply this to our lives, when we read chapter 7 of Ezra, verse number 10, which says that Ezra set his heart to seek the law of the Lord because that's all he had. He didn't have the whole Bible. How would we apply that to our lives? Well, we could say it this way. If, if we were inserting our names into Ezra 7.10, we could say, so for, fill in the blank with your name, so for Jim prepared his heart to seek not just the law of the Lord, because unlike Ezra, I don't just have the law of the Lord. I have the entire Old Testament and the New Testament. I have the Bible. So I would say it this way. For Jim set his heart to seek the scriptures, to understand the Bible, to know the word of God so that I might do it and teach others to do it. Now, if you are tracking with me, I want you to say amen, right? The point is we have a more full revelation of who God is through the completed scriptures than Ezra had when he was seeking the law of the Lord. So because God has given you his Bible, not just the law of the Lord, but the entire revelation of scripture, since God has given you the Bible, will you be like Ezra? That's the question. Will you seek to understand the Bible and to do it, to obey it, and to teach others to do it? Will you serve God by obeying his word? And I might just say as an aside, you really should. Amen? You really should. Did you know that no book has impacted your life like the Bible has impacted your life? It's absolutely true. And it really doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not as to whether or not that statement is true. Whether you're a, a devoted follower of Christ or an atheist the statement remains true. Whether you are well-read in the scriptures or you've never read the scriptures at all, no book has impacted your life as much as the Bible has impacted your life. You say, Pastor, if I've never read it, I don't, I don't even believe it, you might say. How can you say it's impacted my life? Well, let me give you just a couple of reasons um, really, really quickly. One would be because Everybody around you, when you think about the world around you, this book is influencing all of the people moving around you. Did you know that this is the most printed book by far, I mean far and away more than any other book in the history of the world? Um, estimates put it at 7 billion copies of the Bible in circulation around the world today. Now that's almost one Bible for every breathing person on the planet. No book has ever been that widespread in its distribution in the history of the human family. So it's impacted the world simply by the fact that it is so widespread around the globe. But it's influenced Western culture in the most profound ways. I was reading this recently. One author has written that the Bible has propelled the development of everything good in the West. I love that statement. The Bible has propelled the development of everything that is good in the Western world. Notions of human dignity, of human rights, of equality, Justice, 
heroism, compassion, medicine, education, economic progress, political freedom, all of these notions and ideals are put forth on the pages of God's Word, and they influenced the development of Western culture. The arts, literature, philosophy, all of these things are influenced by the Scriptures. And so your life, because you live in the West, your life has been influenced by this book. But more specifically, because you live in America, this book has imp uh, impacted your life. Can you imagine what America would be without the influence of Scripture throughout our history? I mean, my stars, if you go look at the monuments across America, what is etched in stone and erected as monuments across our land, so many of them contain the Scriptures. It's Moses who stands in the, in, the, in the House of Representatives and at the Supreme Court as the lawgiver because the law of Moses and God's word has so impacted and influenced our culture. 85% of American homes have at least one Bible in them. Think about that. 85% of American homes have at least one Bible. Now, it may not be read very much, but it's there. And on average... The American home has four copies of the scriptures. 69% of Americans believe that the Bible provides guidance on how to have a meaningful life. As I mentioned, our moral laws, our national historic morality is rooted in the truths of God's word and the morality expressed in the Ten Commandments. In America, we believe in individual property rights. We protect individual rights and freedoms. Why? Because the Bible tells us that we should. And we punish people who violate those laws or harm other people because the Bible tells us that we should. Now, I could give you many more reasons, but here's the point. I'm saying to you that the Bible has impacted your life. You should seek to know it like Ezra did. You should seek to understand it and obey it because it is the most influential book in your world. Now, I should also say that we can know that the Bible is trustworthy. Some of you may be thinking, well, now, Pastor, you know, our world has changed and America has changed. And so while the Bible might have been important and prevalent in the formation of our nation, in the history of our country, it's not really that important anymore. We've rather pushed it aside, and it's, we don't believe that it is dependable anymore. We can't say that it's trustworthy. Well, I would beg to differ. It is trustworthy, and we know that the Bible is reliable. Listen to what the Bible says in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. It says, all Scripture, everybody say all Scripture, all. How much Scripture? All. Not most? Not some. How much? Say it again. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is God breathed. It is given by inspiration of God and therefore it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The Bible says of itself that it is the inspired Word of God. Now, by the way, let me just take a quick uh, 
survey on Sunday morning, answer on both campuses or at home as well, if you will. If you believe in the inspiration of the Word of God, you believe it is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, would you just affirm that as a church family by shouting amen? Amen. So so I'm encouraged by that. I, I believe that you believe that it is the inspired Word of God. And we believe it ultimately by faith, right? Because we, we've been convinced by the Holy Spirit that's, that it's inspired. But did you know that there's good evidentiary reasons to believe that the Bible is inspired and that it's reliable, that it's a miraculous book? There are wonderful, reasoned uh, 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 conclusions that we can come to about the inspiration of the Scripture. Uh, let me give you just a couple, and I, I'm, I'm a bit pumped about this this morning, and if you can't tell already, but I want you to jot these things down, okay? They're important to know. Uh, let me give you four. I'm going to give them to you real quickly. Four evidences of the inspiration of Scripture. Number one is textual consistency. In other words, the consistency of the text of Scripture. You realize, I think, that the construction of the Bible, uh, the authorship and the preservation and the assembling of the Bible is uh, is an incredibly complex and diverse uh, process. And it happened over a long period of time. The Bible is not even one book, in fact. It's 66 books. Um, and in the case of the Psalms, the Psalms is a songbook made up of 150 different songs. But the Bible, with all of its complexity, 66 different books, which were penned by uh, about 40 human authors. And these weren't 40 men who came from the same seminary and lived in the same region and had the same uh, value systems and beliefs. No, these were 40 men who came from all different walks of life. Prophets and priests and kings and peasants and shepherds and politicians. And they, they came from all different walks of life. They wrote the text of Scripture on three different continents. And they penned it originally in the original uh, uh, documents in three different languages. Forty writers penning 66 books on three continents in three languages over a period of about 1,500 years. That's the construct or the construction of what we call our Bible. And yet with such complexity, the Bible has a very obvious and clear beginning. It has a consistent message throughout and it comes to a logical conclusion at the end. And only the miracle of divine inspiration could accomplish such a task over so many years. Years. It is a reasoned argument to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Let me give you the second one. It is archaeological confirmation. I wish I had time to talk about some of these evidences. Archaeological confirmation is simply to say discoveries that over the process of time have proven the text of the Bible 
to be true. Oh, the number of times people have read something in the Bible and said that cannot be true because there's nothing in in the archaeological record to substantiate it, only to find with the archaeologist's spade that it was ultimately proven to be true. We could talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the evidence of inspiration in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We could talk about the city of David on the uh, southern slopes of the city of Jerusalem. We could talk about the discoveries of Caesarea by the sea in the Holy Land. We could talk about the discoveries at the city of Tel Dan on the Lebanese border. All of these and other places where discoveries have been made, really so many of them in the last 100 years that have proven the Bible to be true. Number three, the third reason evidence for inspiration is fulfilled prophecy. What the Bible prophesied, not predicted, because the Bible doesn't make predictions. Amen? Amen? Prophecy is not a prediction. I can make a prediction. It might rain tomorrow. I can make a prediction, but the Bible doesn't make predictions. The Bible prophesies. Prophecy is pre-written history. It's what the Bible says will come to pass, which so many times have come and are continuing to come to pass, especially as it relates to the person of Jesus. Number four, transformed lives. Never underestimate the power of changed lives as an indicator of the inspiration, the validity, the truth, the veracity of Scripture. Here's the point. The Bible has convincingly been proven to be the inspired Word of God, and it has informed our understanding of who God is. It has shaped our lives. It has influenced our culture. And we can believe it. And we should obey it. And so go back to Ezra chapter number 7. Let's get back to him. Notice what the Bible says in Ezra chapter number 7 and verse number 10. Ezra prepared his heart to seek the word of God that he had available, the law of God, the law of the Lord, that he might do it and teach its statutes in Israel. Now what do we know about Ezra? Verse number 11 gives us some information about him. Ezra 7 Verse number 11 tells us that he's a priest, Ezra the priest. Now I've already noted in the first few verses, verses 1 through 5, how that Ezra delineates his own genealogy 16 generations from Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest, the chief priest. Ezra was a direct descendant of Aaron. He was a priest. Verse number 11 also tells us that he was a scribe. A scribe in the words of the commandments of the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 6 tells us that he wasn't just a scribe. He was a skillful or a ready scribe. He knew the law of God. Scribes were copyists. You know, if I want to make a copy of these two pages in my Bible, I can do it really easily. I just need to go up to the office, put it down on the Xerox machine, push a button, and I'll have a complete and perfect copy in a matter of seconds. But when Ezra lived... They didn't have Xerox machines. The printing press was not invented until the 1500s. And so how did you get extra copies of the law of the Lord? You had scribes, copyists. They would read a word and write a word. Read a word and write a word. This is what Ezra did. As a priest, he was a copyist or a scribe. And you might imagine that the person who reads every word and writes every word is a devout student of what he is reading and writing and would become an expert 
in what he was reading and copying. It's exactly what the Bible says in chapter 7, verse 6 about Ezra. He was a skilled scribe, a priest who knew the law of the Lord. Now, as a priest and a scribe, Ezra had great influence in Israel. He also had great connection to King Artaxerxes. The Bible tells us that the king gave him the, the permission to go up to Jerusalem and to begin to teach the scriptures. Verse 6 tells us, tells us he came to Jerusalem for the purpose of teaching the scriptures. Chapter 7, verse 10, he sought the law of the Lord. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Now, let me suggest to you that the word seek means to investigate, means to study, means to examine. It doesn't mean simply to read, but to dig into. Have you prepared your heart to be that kind of Bible person? To seek, to examine, to study? Or am I just reading a verse a day to keep the devil away? Or have I determined that I'm going to be a student of the Word of God? He prepared his heart to examine the Scriptures and then to do, verse number 10 says, to do what the Scriptures said. That is, to be diligent in his observance of the law of the Lord, to be obedient to it, and then to teach others to do it. Here's what I want you to know. Ezra took obedience seriously. And God takes obedience seriously as well. You know, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, that to obey God is better than to offer sacrifices to God. To obey God is better than to offer the sacrifice of worship to God. Here's what God would say to all of us this morning. Thank you for coming to worship. I'm glad you've come to offer a sacrifice of worship. It's vital that you do that and so important. But let's talk about your obedience. That would be the conversation he would have with you and with me. Because he would say to us that obedience is better, more important than sacrifice. One of the great verses, one of the great words or sentences spoken by Mary, the mother of Jesus, is recorded in John chapter 2, verse 5, where she looks at some servants and she then looks at Jesus and says to them, the servants, about Jesus, whatever he says to you, do it. That's a good, that's a good piece of advice. Whatever he says to you, do it. And in Luke 6, 46, Jesus asks the logical question. Why do you call me Lord if you don't obey me? Why do, you, why do you pray to me, oh Lord, if you are not willing to do what I say? God takes obedience seriously and Ezra is a model. In fact, write this down. Ezra is a model of diligent study, determined obedience, and dedicated teaching. And loved ones, I want you to hear me. Every family needs an Ezra. Every family needs a man or a woman who will be that one who will lead the way in that family to say, I will be the one who will take the time and put in the effort to dig and examine the Scripture so that we will not be living our lives, making our decisions, charting our family course, ignorant to the Word of God. I will be the one who will be the Ezra. I will know what the word of God says we should do. And then I will take the first step and lead the way in doing it. And then I will teach you and my family to do it. Every family needs a man or a woman, a husband or a wife, a father or a mother who will seek and do and teach the word of God. I want you to be that person 
that man or that woman who will do that. And if you'll do it, it'll make a difference. It'll make a difference in your family. It'll make a difference in your community and make a difference in our church and ultimately in the world. In fact, in closing, let me, uh, let me ask you to leave Ezra chapter 7 and go over to the book of Nehemiah just quickly. Go to Nehemiah chapter number 8, if you will. It's the next book in your Bible, so you can find it quickly. Nehemiah chapter number 8. And I want you to watch what happens when someone determines to honor God, to know his word, and to obey his word and teach others to obey it. Uh, Nehemiah chapter number 8, the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. We talked over the last few weeks about Nehemiah's project to rebuild the walls. That wall is completed. It's recorded in chapter 6, verse 15, if you want to mark it. Uh, the wall was completed. In chapter number 8, uh, Ezra, the priest, the scribe, is now in the rebuilt Jerusalem with the rebuilt temple and now the reconstructed walls and the people are living there and life is going on. And Ezra has come from Babylon to teach the people the word of God. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's read beginning in verse number 1. It says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe that he should bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read in the book of the law of the Lord, before the street that was before the water gate, he read the scriptures from the morning until midday. Some of you have already gone, <clears throat> Pastor, did you notice? What time it is. He read from morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for, the, uh, for that purpose. And beside him stood uh, Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Messiah on his right hand. On his left hand stood Padiah. And Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, uh, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above the people on the platform or the pulpit. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen with lifting up of their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua and Benai and Sherebiah and Jamin, or I'm going to say Jamin, not Jamin, and Akub and Shabbatai and Hodijah and Messiah and Kalita and Azariah and Jazabad and Hanan and Peliah and all the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So he read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense of what was being read and caused them to understand the reading. Now, by the way, it's an interesting thing to note when you read this passage that it was not Ezra, this is so encouraging to me, it was not Ezra that gathered the people together and brought the word of God. It was the people that gathered together 
and asked Ezra to bring and read from the word of God. Verse number seven says, I'm sorry, verse one of chapter eight says, and all the people gathered themselves together as one man, one congregation uh, before the street that was, or in the street that was before the water gate. So they then said, Ezra, bring the word of God. Now, by the way, if y'all are with me, uh, just as I'm closing, say amen. Now listen, here's the thing. Every single week, uh, when we gather for worship and you assemble like they did uh, on either campus and we sit in this room and I come or some other pastor, one of our pastors comes and walks to this podium, we had better always have one of these with us. Amen? Because if we don't, what in the world have we got to talk about? What have we got worth sharing if we don't have a copy of God's Word? You should demand, you should crave and expect that when you assemble, it will be the Word of God that you will be hearing from. Not some man's thoughts with a verse tacked on here or there. Not a nice talk with a passage of Scripture to sort of compliment it. No, no, the opposite of that the thus says the Lord, and then we seek to give the sense or to explain what the word of the Lord says. Well, they listened to the scripture for hours. Verse number three, he read, as I mentioned, from morning until midday. And verse five says, when he opened the word of God, they stood up to honor it. That is that they, they stood in reverence or respect. They perked up. I don't expect you to stand up every time I read the word. In fact, this is the way it was done in the Jewish uh, uh, synagogue. The teacher would sit and the people would stand. We ought to try that one Sunday, shouldn't we? But the point is they reverenced the word of God. They respected it. They stood up. And then verse 6 says they received it. They received it with appreciation. They received it uh, with approval. They shouted their amen. Now here's the thing. You should... Expect the word of God to be delivered when we gather. And then you should receive the word of God because when it's proclaimed and you receive it, it prompts a response. Okay? When the word of God is proclaimed and the people receive it, it prompts a response. Now, the word of God can be proclaimed and you not respond. If y'all are listening, say amen. I can stand up here and preach from morning until midday like Ezra did. I could preach all day long, and you could walk out with zero response. But it wouldn't be the fault of the Word of God, and really it wouldn't even be the fault of the preacher, although I might have some part in it. It would be the fault of the lack of reception. Here's the truth. When the Word of God is received, it demands, it commands a response. No reception, no response. No response is indicative of no reception. Let me close by giving you a couple of principles real quickly. Number one, when we receive the word of God and we obey it, we will respond intellectually. That is, we will respond with understanding. I'm so impressed how that in verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, verse 8, over and over in Nehemiah 8, it talks about them receiving the word with understanding. The word understanding means to process in the mind, to distinguish what is so, to to mentally think it through. And verse 3 tells us that the people were attentive. 
And that Ezra and the priests, when they read the word, they then gave the sense of the word. That's what preaching is. Preaching is taking the truth of Scripture and explaining it, giving the sense of it. And so they would give the sense of it. The people would receive it. They would process it intellectually. We should always respond to God's word with thoughtfulness and with reason. In fact, I would suggest to you something. It is that if you approach God's word in a reasoned and thoughtful manner, if you will approach the scriptures intellectually, receive what they say, truly think about them and weigh the evidence, it will lead you to a conclusion of faith and obedience. The people who refuse to have faith in it and obey it are the people who have simply closed their minds to it. We should always seek to understand the Scriptures. We respond intellectually. Secondly, when the Word of God is received in order to obey it, we will respond emotionally. That is, something will happen in our hearts. And I don't mean that we'll weep and cry necessarily, though we might. But notice what happens in verses 9 down through verse number 12 of Nehemiah 8. The Bible says in verse number 9 that the people, upon hearing the word read, were mourning. In fact, it says they were weeping and mourning. Now, a couple of reasons probably that they were weeping and mourning. One was because this is, there's, a, there's a very profound moment here. It's the Day of Atonement. It's a high holy day. They're in the city of God in Jerusalem. It's a very moving kind of event. But what's truly going on here, I believe, is, is conviction. The Word of God is moving them in their hearts. It's taking their, their cold stone hearts and melting them. And so then Nehemiah and Ezra say to them, stop weeping, not because weeping is wrong, but because there's good news. The joy of the Lord is your strength, so don't weep, but go forward in hope. Rejoice and find hope and joy because the joy of the Lord will be your strength. You see, this is what happens when we, if y'all are listening, shout amen. This is what happens when people hear the word of God, they respond to it intellectually, weighing the evidence, thinking it through. It produces conviction, a brokenness before God, which then through the gospel transforms into joyful hope because our conviction brings us to a place of repentance and hope in Christ. And so this is the power of the Word of God. To take a person who previously doesn't believe, convince them of what is true, break their hearts before God, and give them hope through the gospel. It's what the Word of God does. We respond intellectually, we respond emotionally, and then thirdly, we respond obediently. When I, when I when I receive the word of God thoughtfully and in a reasoned way and I understand what it's saying to me and I acknowledge through my, my sorrow I have not been obedient to it and yet the Bible says, but you can receive grace and God is a merciful God and you can obey him, then my mourning turns to joy. I find hope in Jesus and then I'm propelled into a life that desires to live Obediently, and the, and the Bible says that this is what they did. They responded obediently. Look at verse number 14, Nehemiah 8, verse number 14. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded to Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths or tabernacles, tents, if you will, uh, for the feast of the seventh month. 
They found out something they should be doing. And look at verse number 16. So the people went forth and they got the, the branches and they began to build the booths. Now this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and I don't have time. Uh, it's not important to our purposes to explain the Feast of Tabernacles. But here's the point. That they heard the word of God. They understood it intellectually. It brought conviction so they mourned. They were led toward hope in the mercy of God, they found joy. And then when they, in that joy of God's goodness, understood what the Bible said, then they said, well, I just want to be obedient to what the Bible says. So if you're going to be a person who's going to bear up under the pressures and the burdens of life, and if you're going to have a family that's going to be able to withstand the high tension of life, Yes, all the things we've talked about previously, you need. You need endurance and courage and integrity and all those things. But do you know what you need? Maybe the capstone of all of it is a heart that says, whatever he says, I will do. And when I find in this book what I know to be true, what breaks my heart, I will run to the mercy of God and then step forward to live a life of obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice.